Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome a true veteran of film criticism, a key member of the Los Angeles and New York Film Critics Association, the lead movie critic for Newsweek between 1977 and 2012, who has also written documentaries on Greta Garbo, Groucho Marx, Elizabeth Taylor, and Betty Davis, a frequent film festival jury member, and currently the lead programmer of the Palm Springs International Film Festival. Welcome, David Anson. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm. I feel like I'm in such um, such privileged company. Uh, I, I I don't meet a lot of film critics. Although part of my responsibility for many years as a publicist was to make sure your screenings were pre uh, prevalent. <laughs> Although I have to say I was working for some independent distributors, and I don't think you ever came to any of our films because they were they they were a little bit maybe a little bit off the mainstream. I think that, uh, yeah. uh, it, but anyway, I, I, I remember very well the whole screening process and uh, how challenging it was to get people to come out. And interestingly, the whole idea was that you'd have like a main screening in the evening, but often you'd have to have little screenings during the day to accommodate people's schedules. Right, that's true, yeah. Yeah, it, it is, it's all changed, you know. I mean, I, I was I was doing it out of, well, first Boston, and then I was doing it in New York for many years before I moved back to Los Angeles. I mean, I, I go back to the days when there was a little screening room on, on Broadway uh, in New York, and you could smoke in the screening room. <laughs> they had little ashtrays on the, on the back of the, of the chairs. I mean, imagine that in 2023. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Well, speaking of 2023, um, the the state of the movie business, we're right now in the middle of a huge Writers Guild strike. Uh, oh. There's all this discussion about where the film business is heading. Uh, you've been covering film for so many years in many capacities. Uh, when I talk to my friends, many of whom are in film, we do a lot of bemoaning mm -hmm. about the state of the business. How do you see the film business in the next 20 years? I mean, the it's it's a business that is perplexing in many ways, whereas television seems to be thriving. There's too many yeah. shows. Yeah. Films uh, are having some trouble these days. What what are some of the issues that you think are prevalent? Well, you know, the, the there's so many issues. <laughs> We're really uh, undergoing a sea change. And, you know, the pandemic just wreaked havoc uh, on the on the theatrical exhibition of films. And there's, you know, I know a great many people of a certain age who have not gone back to a movie theater, uh, which has been really particularly hard on the on the small theaters, the film, <laughs> the theaters that show independent movies and foreign films or international films. You know, when I go, I'm in Los Angeles, when I go to see a movie at the Royal Theater on the West Side, <clears throat> I'm usually almost invariably there's six people in the theater, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the uh, <clears throat> landmark multiplex on Pico closed. Although the good news is that they are, they've taken over the sunset five, 
and it's going to reopen as a landmark theater. AMC couldn't make it work there. But it, it's a very tough time for for ex, for ex, for theater owners, for theater chains. You know, a few movies uh, are blockbusters in packed theaters. Um, at this moment in time, there's one independent film, A24 has it called Past Lives, that's doing really good business. But it's it's an anomaly, you know. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're not the Super Mario Brothers or you know, the Avengers, uh, nobody's going to the movies. Uh, and of course, streaming has, you know, has changed the nature of the game, and the competition. You know, there's so much good work being done in long form television. Um, you know, when I when I go to a party, people are talking about TV series. They're not talking about the movies they just went to because they didn't go to them, you know, or they're waiting for them to stream. Uh, so it's 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 sad because I I you know think that the theatrical experience is quantitatively different from seeing something at home. I love seeing movies on big screens. Your attention doesn't wander. You can't pause it. You can't wander off and get a snack. Uh, I mean, you could, but <laughs> but you won't. <laughs> And it's just, it's, it's, you know, these movies were made to be seen on a big screen, you know? Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about storytelling too. I mean, I, I mean, you and I are fairly contemporaries. I mean, I remember when uh, Hollywood had a plethora of genres they covered. Uh, there were comedies, there were romantic comedies, there were Westerns, yeah. there were adventure films, historical epics. It seems to me that if you look at the studios, now that they're all conglomerates run by major corporation, not people with uh, their own instincts, uh, like the old studio heads, there seems to be a total surrender to the youth audience, probably for very good reason, because those are the people who come repeatedly to movies yeah. and are not staying home. But I think what seems to have happened is that um, the... The, the kind of exciting and fun storytelling that was very much a part of so many decades has been kind of replaced. Now, I I don't want to denigrate the Marvel universe or the DC universe or the Transformers universe because those people put their heart and soul into their movies and they spend hundreds of millions of dollars to make them. But do you think in the future there'll be room for more storytelling and more exciting <clears throat> material? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think there's got to be some kind of a, a shift at some point because, you know, everything wears out its welcome after a while. And uh, and there's already little inklings of signs that people, you know, are getting a little tired of the, of the superhero shtick. But uh, not that it's in any imminent danger uh, as long as it's making the kind of money that it is. And, of course, it's been, you know... It's been aided so much by 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 the digital revolution and by what you can do with with special effects, uh, where anything is possible. But that also, I think, has made storytelling a little lazy, you know. Um, and it gets to the point where I think an audience gets a little jade when anything is possible. What has meaning, you know? It it's some of these movies. It feels a little bit like playing tennis with the net down, you know. Um, and I think, you know, when I go see, I, I happened yesterday, I went to the theater to see the new uh, 
Nicole Holofcener movie, uh, You Hurt My Feelings, which felt like such a throwback, like, oh, my God, they're still making movies about this sort of people where people kind of are life size and talk to each other and there's no special effects in sight, you know, Um I felt it's the nice same. That somebody's still doing it, <laughs> but it's but it's few and far between. I felt the same way when I went to see the Air movie, the one about the yeah. the, the yeah. Jordan tennis shoe with Matt Damon. I felt like I nobody was wearing a cape. Uh, there weren't explosions. <laughs> the other thing, also, and I've studied I've studied some of these genres very carefully. I've been very involved in writing about the James Bond movies over the years. I've written four editions of an encyclopedia as well uh -huh. as behind the scenes history. And um, length of movies seems to have been out of control. I mean, it mm -hmm. seems to me that the early James Bond movies were generally under two hours. And the last right. the last James Bond movie was almost three hours, but it's not just the James Bond movies. All these Marvel yeah. movies seem to run closer to 230, 240. They're getting and, longer uh, and longer. Longer and longer. What do you think that's all about? Well, it's actually not new. There was a period when I was a kid, if you remember, I, I, I may be a little older than you, in the 1950s, when there were all these gigantic long movies that often had intermissions, you know, movies like uh, Giant and around the world in 80 days you know there was uh and all these big roman spectacle movies there's a certain periods in in american history where giganticism is big and it seems to be it seems to be returning right now um and i don't think people really like really long movies in general you know um well, I know the theater owners don't like it because they can't show they, it as they often. They can't show as many movies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that, the other but but thing it isn't even, even the art films. I mean, uh, if you look at the movies that were showing in Cannes this year, they were very long. The new Scorsese movie is very long. Um, there were movies that ran four hours in Cannes. So it's it's happening not just in the pop, in the pop movie world it seems to be happening in the art film um art house cinema as well yes um you know i was trying to figure out whether that since people are going very few times now that maybe they're they're putting more bang for your buck in the movies but i i just think the length sometimes runs against the enjoyment the other thing about the movie business and i i have to say this i I had my morning exercise regimen, which is I always put a movie on. This morning, I was watching Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and To Have and Have Not, uh, yeah. 1944, two, two probably of the most iconic actors ever. Absolutely. And, and of course, that was Lauren Bacall's film debut. And she smolders the screen every five minutes. Yeah. Uh, it seems that a lot of movies in the classic period from the 30s to the 60s and into the 70s really benefited from the star system, which, of course, began to disappear when mm -hmm. the studios had to give up all their contract actors. And now we get actors right. from different ways. How yeah. do you feel about Are there movie stars today? I mean, do we have any stars that you consider to be to be regular people that people <laughs> want to see their movies? Well, I think certainly Tom Cruise would qualify because he's identified with a certain kind of movie that, you know, people go to see a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible, I'm sure, is going to make a, a pile of money, you know. Um, 
but there there aren't there aren't many not 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 like the old not like the old days at all um you know i don't think you can really say that i mean there are great stars that are still appearing in movies like Harrison ford in the new indiana jones movie but i don't think people are going to that movie because Harrison Ford is in it. They're going to see it because it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> and it's not the same thing. No, it's so true. It's so true. You know, I mean, is Timothy Chalamet a, a star? Um, I don't know. It remains to be seen. He certainly, I think, <clears throat> can sell tickets, but, uh, you know, they'll go see Dune, but they're going to see Dune, you know. Right. And, right. and they're not going to see him in a, you know, Cannibal love story, as good as it was. Um. <laughs> I mean, there was a time when Clint Eastwood, you went to see an Eastwood or you saw a Charles Bronson movie or a right. John Wayne picture. Yeah, um, it's it, we have a lot of international actors now that have gotten big profiles. I am just seeing a notice for. Um, oh, God, I'm just blanking on his name. The Australian actor who has his new version of the uh, uh of his new thriller coming out. Uh, he has a brother who's also a film, uh, an actor. Um, what is his name? Um, uh, I'll remember. I'll remember. There's 10,000 actors. Uh, let's, talk a little, let's talk a little bit about you. Now, I read that your dad, uh, Joe Anson, was uh, in the film business. He made he was. shorts yeah. and trailers at MGM. Uh, uh, did As a kid, did you ever get a chance to go down to the MGM lot and say hi to him there? I did once in a while, not too often, but yeah, I remember going over, you know, Motor Drive, which was very hilly in those days before they sort of flattened it, going out to MGM, which is now, you know, Sony. Um, but uh, yeah, it was exciting to uh, to go down there. And I, re I remember going to, after he worked at MGM, he wrote the Pete Smith specials there, which were these comic two-reelers that were very popular in the 50s. And um he worked for a while at Columbia, <clears throat> making their trailers. And uh, I remember going down um, and watching uh, them film. They there was a reproduction of the Canals of Venice in on a on the studio lot inside, and there it was a Bob Hope movie. Uh, and there was Bob Hope floating on a fake Venetian canal. It was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. Well, I, I always, you know, I, when I think of MGM, because I, I kind of grew up in the neighborhood. I, I grew up in Beverlywood. So we would go down to visit my cousins in the Baldwin Hills and we would drive by lot three off of Jefferson, which, of course, <laughs> all those condominiums for many years. Uh -huh. It's funny because I remember seeing all these burnt out fronts of various buildings. And I was wondering if that may have been dating back to the 1930s and the burning of atlanta because they were all burnt to the ground <laughs> they may have been from several war movies or the combat tv series that uh -huh. were shot down there yeah uh, now when you first started going to the movies did you was it a family affair did you guys go to the movies regularly as when you were a kid yeah we did we did i was kind of you know raised with a <laughs> the love of movies and i was kind of obsessed with them because i, I started I think I was about 12 years old and I started keeping a list of every movie that I saw and I would write down the title and the stars of it and I would give it a rating. <laughs> uh, 
which theater okay. which theater was your go-to theater in those days hmm. um well there were several you know I, I i was on the west side so you know i would go to the beverly theater which doesn't exist anymore right. on beverly drive and <laughs> the village theater the pick fair on uh which is actually where the landmark theaters were there pick, was a, pickwood. The, pickwood. The, the, the pickwood i'm sorry the Pickwood Theater. Uh, I saw Vertigo at the Pickwood Theater. I remember it well because I loved that movie, which was a big flop at the time. Isn't that, isn't that surprising considering its reputation today? That Yeah. Uh, I, I find that amazing. The, the same theater four years later, I was standing in line around the block to see The Time Machine, uh -huh. the original George Powell. But yeah. uh, you must have also probably gone to the uh, the Palms Theater, I would think. Down, did you ever go down to the Palms Theater down on Motor? Yeah, went to the Palms. Not that often. There were a lot of theater. I mean, there was a there was a big theater that's no longer there. The Beverly Wilshire. Uh, it was a Warner's Theater right around the Stanley Warner Theater on La Cienega and Wilshire, right there. Is that the one you're talking about? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't as far down as it, it was close to Beverly Drive. It was right around the corner from the Beverly Theater. Oh, okay. That's where I saw Lawrence of Arabia and the oh. Ten Commandments. Oh, uh, sure, sure. There was the Four Star Theater further down. Um, of course, of sure. course. You know, there were art houses. What that The theater that uh, when I was in high school, I used to go a lot to the New Beverly Cinema, which is now Quentin Tarantino's theater. Right. Showed sort of first run art house movies there. Sometimes I'd take the bus all the way down to, you know, Silver Lake to, to see... Uh, movies at the vista uh <laughs> now but, you you uh, started your career in criticism after harvard at the boston paper was called the uh the real paper the real paper yeah yeah in the in the 70s uh, there were two paper there were two um kind of underground papers there were you know sort of like boston's equivalent to the village voice there was the boston phoenix and the real paper and they were both you know terrific papers and almost every critic of my generation who ended up in new york started at those two papers it was like the the farm team for the majors you know and they was watched very closely by editors in new york who would pluck the talent from from boston and invite them to uh to the big magazines and outlets and newspapers uh you know before uh <clears throat> janet maslin was a critic at the um at the uh phoenix and she was hired by Newsweek, actually, before me. Then she went to the New York Times. And when she went to the New York Times, I was hired by by Newsweek. Now, uh, the main paper in Boston in, back then, was it The Globe? The Globe, it, yeah. It was there. So did they have a main film critic as well? They did. They did. Yeah. Um, but the... There was more attention being paid to the critics that were writing for the. Uh, well, it reminds me a papers. little bit. It reminds me a little bit of Los Angeles because I found the best criticisms uh, in the L.A. papers were from the L.A. Weekly and right. the Free Press. Yeah, yeah. Where the the writers were much more. Not that I don't want to denigrate any of the L.A. Times critics because they they're right. all very good, but I found that the, hmm. the 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 reviews in the LA Weekly and the Free Press were always very interesting. They were. Those yeah. papers are all gone. Um, tell, tell I, I read that you were actually recommended to the job at Newsweek by Pauline Kael. Is that true? Apparently so. The interesting thing is that I didn't know that until uh, some years after 
<laughs> Interesting. Uh, I mean, I knew Pauline not well. I wasn't one. There's, you know, there's a group of critics known as the Paulettes who were sort of slavishly devoted to Pauline. I was a big fan of hers, but uh, I was very shocked one day. I got a phone call from her when I was at the Real Paper. She just called me out of the blue to compliment me on a review that I'd that I'd written because she she likes she followed all the younger critics. And she seemed to like my work. And she invited me. I said, if you're ever out in Western Massachusetts, she lived in Great Barrington, drop in, and which I did. I went and, and met her. But we never became close friends. But uh, I was very gratified when I heard some years after I had been hired by Newsweek that she had, in fact, recommended me uh, to them. I didn't know that. She never took credit for it. She never told me that. So you get the job at Newsweek, which is a very prestigious magazine. Who was your counterpart over at time by that at, at that time? I'm curious. Well, there were two. Uh, uh, Richard Corliss and Richard Schickel were doing. Got it. <clears throat> and I was doing, and Jack Kroll was doing some, some film criticism at Newsweek. He was our theater critic as well. He was our main theater critic. But uh, so you were uh, you were based in New York at that initially. Yeah. Yeah. Initially. Yeah, I was. I. Came down from Boston. I, I was in New York for 11 years, and then I kind of needed a change. And it took me a while to convince them. It was the early days of the internet, and you know the, the tr tradition at Time and Newsweek was the writers were in New York, uh, <clears throat> the reporters were out in the field, even in the hard news, you know, and they'd file their reporting. And but everything was written in New York. But then, let's <laughs> see, the internet changed everything. And uh, and I decided I wanted to try living in L.A. again. I'd been away for 20 years and uh, it took me a year to convince them to let me do it. Uh, they were resistant to the idea at first, but um, I, would, and it, and I only could have done it in L.A. or New York because that's the only place where everything was screened. Right, uh, right. Where you could write timely reviews. The, the cultures in New York and L.A. are so different. I mean, New York, you walk everywhere. Yeah. I assume that. Did you live in Manhattan during those years? Um, yeah, I did. You could walk to the theaters. You didn't have to drive a car or anything like that. Or take the subway or take, take the subway. a cab. Or... <laughs> do you remember the first? I never had a car in New York. <laughs> do, you, do, do you remember the first film you reviewed for Newsweek? Um, I think it was. Hold on. I can, I can tell you. <laughs> I, I actually have. If you hold on a sec. Sure. <laughs> sure. I think I, we're uh, listening to David Anson. If you just joined <laughs> us, who's who's uh, I actually sort of <laughs> have a, a a record of it somewhere. You 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 certainly yeah. kept records for everything, and you're still keeping records of every movie you see, correct? I'm a, yeah, I'm a bit of a list freak. It's, <laughs> I confess. <laughs> um, the first movie I I reviewed three movies the first week I was there. One was a, a Richard Pryor movie called Greased Lightning, right? One was a movie called March or Die. I can't even remember what that. That's what uh, Gene Hackman about Gene the Hackman, agent. right? And the and the third was a, a Werner Herzog movie, who was not that well known yet, called Strosek. Um, and uh, yeah, I did three reviews that that first week <laughs> in 1970, August of 1977. Let's see, that would have been uh, hmm. just about four, three months after the Star Wars movie broke. Uh, I remember that summer very well. I was yeah. in 
I was traveling in Europe and everybody was talking about Star Wars. Um, yes, yes. Movie that, that changed everything in many ways. Did, did you like the original? <laughs> it's a funny story that I, I reviewed the original uh, for the real paper. And um, <clears throat> I, I'll confess... <laughs> I actually I actually wrote a piece of I wrote a piece about my me and Star Wars for for uh, Alta magazine. I went to see this movie. Didn't really know what I was going to see. There was some rumor that there was this hot new movie, and um, this was in Boston. And I ran into there was a a brilliant a friend of mine was this brilliant part film critic but political writer named Andrew Kopkind who's no longer alive. And uh, before we went to the theater, he offered me a joint. And now <laughs> I I never smoked dope before I, as I was reviewing a movie. For some reason, that night I did. <laughs> I took a toke or two. And it proved to be extremely strong. <laughs> Stronger <laughs> than I really wanted it to be. And so I go in and I see this movie and it's called Star Wars. And, you know, I don't know what I'm saying anyway. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> I was so stoned that I had a really hard time following the plot. But I was having a great time whooshing around and <laughs> with the with the, And I shamelessly confess that I had to rely on the production notes to describe the plot. <laughs> But um, well, having having written production notes for a living for years, I'm glad that they were useful to see. Really, this time they really came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, you know, I, I I did write a good review. I had a strange. Um, I also was the first many years later when I was at Newsweek. I was the first person to review um, the Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace, which, you know, was the most eagerly anticipated story. It had been, what, 12 years since there had been a Star Wars. Right. Camped out on the streets for weeks, you know, before, you know, just to get into that first showing. And um, I saw it on a Friday night late. They screened it at the last minute. Um, came back to the office and they decided... Uh, to put it on the cover, which meant I had to I, I had to pull an all-nighter and write a cover story about it. But I, I thought it was really bad, as most people <laughs> have come to conclude. But to be the first person to say it was bad, the hate mail that I got was quite astonishing. Uh, you know, it's like, kill the messenger. It was the first, you know, of the Jar Jar, the Jar Jar Binks the, appearance. The, the first of the prequels. Uh, and uh, uh, yes. you know, it was a mess and it was badly directed and it was badly acted and i just thought it was terrible and i and you know even though we put it on the cover newsweek was not afraid to let me say that it wasn't good um and uh i was reviled for it um it was the early days of the internet and um roger ebert told me about there was a site it was back in the days i don't know if you in the early days of the internet there was something called bulletin boards and he, there was a there was a site at the time i think it was called deja vu something like that and he told me about it and you could put in your name and see what people were saying about you and he warned me he said you may not like what you see and my timing couldn't have been worse because i i, I tested it out 
shortly after I had written this negative review of Star Wars. And up comes this bulletin board, right? The, the, at the top, the topic sentence was, David Anson is a moron. <laughs> and it just got worse after that. Uh, it was fascinating. It was my first glimpse into, you know, what is now, you know, when we all know the dangers of the internet, it's like the 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 id of the nation, you know, and people can oh, spill whatever garbage they want to spill on you. And people would just make these outrageous kind of people were making all these personal comments about my life, which I don't know where they got them. They just, you know, made stuff up. It was, you know, at a certain oh. point, it was so outrageous, I couldn't take it personally. Well, it is amazing in those days uh, when newspapers were still a major player and magazines like the weekly news magazines were major mm. players, how much power mm. film critics had for certain yeah. audiences. I think you've pointed yeah. out in the past that some some films are review proof. They're going to be right. successful no matter what gets said. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's interesting to think back to those times because being a publicist on the other side, we were always very careful in alerting the critics about when they should run their reviews because we yeah. didn't want them to run them too early because uh, right. we wanted that uh, that all-important opening weekend box office yeah. before but the world also, out. You know, in those days, because there was no internet, um, studios weren't a, would show me a movie maybe weeks before it was going to open and you'd, you'd have time to actually think about the film that you were writing about you know i feel bad for critics today who are writing online the pressure to be the first one out there most reviews today are written you know the second after they see the movie they don't let it settle you know they don't have any time to really ruminate on it it's changed the nature of criticism a lot oh, sure. uh, um, but they trusted you in those days you know you weren't going to break your review date you know and there was no there was no tweeting there was no you know did a filmmaker ever approach you for an opinion on a project before it became a full movie? Did did they ever show you a script or say, because obviously I'm sure that people respected your opinion. There aren't a lot of very good opinions in town that people respect. Did, did, did a filmmaker ever approach you? Not quite in that sense, no. There have been times where I've looked at sort of, well, it, it really, but I didn't do this until after it went, I stopped being a regular critic where I'm, someone might ask me to take a look at a movie early and it might not be finished, you know, and to, to, to give them some notes and get, get my reaction. I mean, that that's happened, but no, I can't think of too many instances where, you know, unless it was, you know, unless it was sort of an old old friend and they knew I wasn't going to write about it. Yeah. I know yeah. that you wrote plays in high school uh, when in you college, were so, yeah. in college. Did, did you ever think about writing a movie? I did write a couple of movies, actually. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to, it's a long story. The first one, it's a good story, but I'll make it short. I stumbled into a job writing a Hollywood screenplay in the summer after I graduated from college. <clears throat> and I wasn't even looking for a job. But a friend of mine met this producer at a party who asked if she knew he knew any young writers. And the next thing I knew, 
I had a job and I was incredibly excited. I was adapting this novel that had been a kind of a well-known novel in the 1950s. And I turned it into a late 60s, it was a Hollywood story, too much too soon kind of story. It was based on a, a fairly well-known book called Chocolates for Breakfast. Hmm. And written by Pamela Moore, a very young writer. Uh, anyway, long story short. The was, producer, the, was, the, was the producer a recognizable name? Well, producer? she she had she had produced a couple of movies. She produced a Sal Minio movie. She hadn't done a lot, but she, you know, she was she was a pro, but she was also a bit crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> I won't go to all the ins and outs of it, but she disappeared for several years. There were people that were interested. They'd meet her. They'd sort of get cold feet. And she vanished off the face of the earth for several years. And I couldn't find her. And she owed me money. <laughs> of course. <laughs> then, uh, several years go by. I'm now in Boston, starting my career as a critic uh, at The Real Paper. And the phone rings. And it's her, Bernice. She said, oh, David. I said, Bernice, where, you know, where have you been all these years? You owe me $3,000 in those days was a lot of money this is like 1975 or six and i said she said oh do you have a copy of the script someone's interested i said bernice what's you know what's been happening she said well you know we almost got the movie done made i said really there was this really young director and he really wanted to do it but at the last minute the money people got nervous because he was so young and it all fell apart i said what was his name steven spielberg i said <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> jaws had just come out steven spielberg was the biggest name in hollywood at the moment and she's telling me that steven spielberg wanted to make chocolates for breakfast anyway that was the last conversation i ever had with her and i thought well i mean it's bernice it, maybe she's you know maybe it's bullshit is it true cut to several years later i'm now working for newsweek I'm writing a cover story on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I'm sitting in Spielberg's house in Malibu, and this pops into my head. I said, now's my chance to find out. I said, Stephen, you ever heard of a project called Chocolates for Breakfast? He got this very startled look on his face, and he said, yeah, that was going to be my first movie. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. He said, oh, I've got, I said, I wrote that. He said, you did? Oh, I've got a copy of your script in my other house. <laughs> <laughs> It's that's, like, that's not really, and I like to tell people it would have destroyed his career. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's quite quite a uh, story. Um, yeah, I, I have to say I'm a big fan of Stevens. I, I see everything he makes, and I sure. yeah. I, um, I I really enjoyed uh, the Fablemans. Uh, Although I think they should have called the movie the Spielbergs because I think nobody <laughs> really cared about the Fablemans. Fablemans. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I as I mentioned to you before we got on the air, I was I, I do these film uh, reviews of classic films on Saturday. I take my favorites that people may not know, and I, uh -huh. I do a little essay. Um, I don't write about movies. I don't want to write about movies I don't like for obvious right. reasons. Yeah, but as a film critic, you obviously have to see a lot of movies that are being foisted on the public. Right. Some of them are just dreck. Yeah, uh, I, I think I read I read in one of your interviews that you said that you had the choice that you didn't have to review it. Well, it it, it depended on what kind of movie it was. I, for example, I with with a more vulnerable little 
low budget indie movie or, or or an international film, I would be very careful because there the critics in those days in the magazines and newspapers had a lot of power over those movies, and I didn't want to. I really I had to pick my. It also became harder and harder at Newsweek to get foreign films into the mix. It wasn't hard the first week I was there when they said, oh, go, there's this Werner Herzog movie, go review it. Uh, the philosophy of the magazines changed, became more, they started to think more like Hollywood. Anyway, what I'm what I'm saying is that I would really only re review the international movies that I really liked. I didn't want to be hard on, I, I just wouldn't review them. Whereas, you know, some big expensive with a huge Hollywood movie with a big marketing campaign behind it, as you said before, some movies are critic proof, you know. Sure, uh, and some movies just come in stillborn. I remember sitting in a Detroit theater in 19, let's see, that would have been 1987, and they, they were doing a local screening of Ishtar. Uh -huh. I I I did not like Ishtar at all, and uh, it it died a very quick death. Uh, and <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I wrote one of the one of the few sympathetic reviews of Ishtar. <laughs> I thought it was a very maligned movie. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I but I actually rather like it. <laughs> well, the I think what and critical opinion has changed on Ishtar. It, it has, has. Its, it has its fans. I think I was probably being a little hard on it because I was representing the movie that opened opposite it. <laughs> I was that? in Detroit because we had a little movie called The Gate, which was about three little boys who find the gate to hell. Uh, had okay. a very arresting trailer with cool special effects. So we opened that same weekend and we came within like $100,000 of beating Ishtar at the box <laughs> office. And I have a feeling, if I'm not mistaken... Ishtar had a cover story on at Newsweek on that picture. That might have been a cover story of yours. No, no, no. Okay, well, but no. it had some. It was, major a, it, was a, it was a fairly big story, but it wasn't a cover story. <clears throat> in terms of classic film, when you first started to go to the movies back no. in West LA in the fifties, uh, did you have a particular type of movie you liked that continued on through adulthood? I mean, are there certain certain films over the years that are filmmakers that you were big fans of? I think the I think the first time I realized it's interesting when I started that list when I was twelve, I didn't include the name of the director. But a year or two later, I sort of discovered <laughs> there was such a thing as a director, and started and and then added the name of the director. And I think that the first director who I think I became somewhat obsessed with because he made a couple of my favorite movies was George Stevens. Oh. Uh, Giant was a big movie in my childhood. Sure. And and there was a revival. My father took me to a revival in a theater of A Place in the Sun, which he had made before Giant. And it was like, oh, this, you know, I could I could see a vision there. I could see a, a style. I could see, you know, and uh, those were two of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Sure. To have a rather serious taste when I was a kid. Certainly, um, certainly helped by the star power and the fact that both featured a very just uh, amazing Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, is there a is there a greater screen kiss than the one between Elizabeth Taylor and Monty Clift and uh, in, in a place sure. in the sun. It's just uh, 
A classic. It, 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 I had last uh, last a couple months ago. I had George Stevens Jr. on my show, ah. and then I got to talk to him about it. I I uh, we talked a little bit about the Diary of Anne Frank. Because uh-huh. I've written a children's picture book with my friend David Miller called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. And there was uh-huh. really a cat in the attic. The Peter Van Pels brought the cat in and Anne writes about the cat. So I got to share that with George. And uh-huh. interestingly, he was the second unit director that went over to Amsterdam and yeah. shot all those wraparounds when they're on the streets of Amsterdam in that movie. And oh, really? some good stories about that. Yeah, yeah. And you're also you. I would think that you probably early on were a Hitchcock fan. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I remember when I first saw North by Northwest and, and Virgo. Those were, you know, two two favorites of mine. Yeah, Hitchcock, and I would see every everything that he did. And I like musicals. I remember loving loving Carmen Jones when I was a kid. The auto oh, interesting. Interesting. Was, was a favorite and Starlag 17 was was a favorite when I was a kid with and still plays over and over again I had Stan Rosenfield on my show now Stan is a top publicist in town yeah. he, used to, he used to work for Stan and yeah. he's he and I are obsessed with that movie we actually really? when we call each other up we say how you doing Hoffy which of course is one of the characters from the movie <laughs> and William yeah. Holden William Holden's uh grin when he he, yeah. he comes out of the hole at the end and gives the salute as he's about to go off and get right. Dunbar to safety. Yeah. I mean, won him the Oscar that year. That was that was probably the Oscar yeah. grin of all time. Yeah. Holden was one of my was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Oh, he sure. So I many bet, good movies. I bet you were a fan of Bridge on the River Kwai. I would think. Oh yeah. I'm big fan. Big fan. For sure. Do you do you think that I mean films today? seem to be very much, I won't say obsessed, but they are focused on the real human condition. There's a lot of reality in our films about showing how people live their real lives. Last night I went to see a movie, a very interesting movie called uh, Blue Jean. I don't know if you've heard about it. I've seen it, yeah. Oh, you saw it, okay. I saw it quite a while ago, yeah. Yeah, I I was very impressed with the filmmaking. For the listeners who haven't seen Blue Jean, it's very much a 1980s story about the lesbian lifestyle in England. And the lead actress, I thought, was terrific. But that's the kind of film they would never have made back in the the 60s or 50s or 40s. It it Mm. seems to be there was a lot of artifice in storytelling in those days, uh, fantasy, adventure, historical, like, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I kind of, I, I, I respect and appreciate films like, um, like Blue Jean and, and certainly Nomad, which was a big Oscar winner a few mm-hmm. years ago and those kinds of films. Yeah. But I don't think Blue Jean is not an American movie. It's an English film. It's an English film. Right. No, of course. And, um, but I, I don't, I don't, consider them classics and i wouldn't i wouldn't go out and purchase the dvd and that's another thing Uh i find interesting these days i don't have a lot of motivation to own the movie whereas i had a lot of motivation back in the 90s of owning lots of movies and i have hundreds of dvds Mm -hmm. i'm wondering yeah I, i i think this is probably blasphemous to say but can hollywood still make classics (laughs) well that's a good question. 
I don't know. We and, and it's one we won't be able to answer until the future <laughs> when they look back and say, oh, you know, because nobody thought the f films that we now consider classics, so many of them weren't considered classics or even good, you know, back then. Um, you know, like Vertigo is the perfect example, which was not particularly well reviewed or or well liked when it when it opened. What do you what do you think the critics felt about the movie at that time that didn't work? I'm curious. Well, I think I think Hitchcock, in a way, was a victim of his own reputation in that people expected a different kind of movie from him. Uh, they expected. I mean, this is a movie that gives gives away the mystery at the in the middle. You know, it's 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 not about revealing. You know, is she? the same woman, you know, it lets us know, you know, um, he was after something else here. And it took a while for audiences to realize what the movie was really about, that it wasn't like a thriller in the conventional way that it was a more, it was a psychological thriller. Um, and it, 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 it took, uh, I guess maybe a new generation of film critics to look at it from a different angle. Um, uh, but I think it 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 because it, it, it's not it's not a conventional Hitchcock movie, you know. I you can't really think of another Hitchcock movie that's structured in the same way. Um, no, I I have to say that I, when I watch a Hitchcock movie, I'm often very much inspired by the music he chooses and having mm. his relationship with Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, this was Great a big stories. plus for me there. I noticed that you, in terms of more contemporary filmmakers, you're a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. I am, yeah. What What is it about his films that has really made you a huge fan? Well, gosh, I just think he's, of his generation, the really the most interesting. I mean, he his movies really, I think they, they are going to be considered classics, many of them, you know, and they really pop. I mean, he has such a, a extraordinary... They work on so many levels. They're they're exciting, you know. Visually, they're they're so remarkable. I mean, the Boogie Nights is extraordinary. Um, well, they're you know, I, I, he hasn't really made a. There, there's some that not not everybody likes, and there's some that I like more than others. Well, I watched one for the first time the other night, which uh, I I just happened to be uh, streaming it. I watched The Master, and I know uh, The Master was not very successful for him. No, but uh, the performance by Joaquin Phoenix, amazing, amazing. Joaquin Phoenix, uh, in many ways, is a very odd gentleman in his choices of his roles. His characters are very off the wall, and, and yeah. but he pours himself into those roles. And oh yeah, and even though I don't like his character in Gladiator, I'm a big Russell Crowe fan in that movie. Yeah. But you got it. You got to admire the brooding quality of his character. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he gives it 150% whenever he acts, you know. And I I feel, I don't know if you saw the last one, um, the um, um, Bo is Afraid. Oh, I haven't seen that. Uh, well, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Another very long movie. A, a very interesting director getting to make the movie he always wanted to make and but that nobody wants to see <laughs> I are, you a, are, are you a tarantino fan usually yeah yeah my I, my favorite I mean, movie, oops sorry yeah, go ahead 
uh, have Ben uh, edit that out. Sorry, Ben, that was something falling on the floor. Uh, my favorite movie of the last five years is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just mm. found it to be pure fun for me, even though obviously yeah. it gets very violent. But right. I just, um, he he was well, having, well, you were living there. Uh, actually, no, you were probably living in Boston in 69. Uh, I was actually, yeah. I, I When those murders happened, I was actually in London where I had seen Polanski's repulsion. Oh, okay. Right when around when that was happening. I was completely freaked out by that movie. It's, it really is a chilling movie. And it was right around the time of the of the murders and it was very creepy. And I I actually knew somebody who had met Charlie Manson in a social situation. It was, you know, uh it, 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 it's, but yeah, that, 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 I think that is one of his best films. It's just I thought it captured the period so beautifully, and Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are such a great bro team. Yeah, so, yeah a lot of both. romance there, and uh, Margot Robbie. It was just one of those movies, interestingly, to pick out things, and it was our own neighborhood. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. this is West Los Angeles, or this is Los Angeles, Hollywood, and. And I, I just enjoyed it very much. Uh, I, I hope that Tarantino continues to make movies, although he claims he's only going to make claims one Claims he's more. only going to make one more. We'll see. <laughs> you know, Soderbergh has said that, too, and then gone on and made a dozen movies after he announced he wasn't going to make any more. So <laughs> I, well, hope, I hope Tarantino. Well, we've been listening uh, to David Anson, uh, who's... Uh, the, I, I can say that you're one of the deans of film criticism in our country. And are you still reviewing occasionally? Not much. I, um, you know, I, I, I don't feel the compulsion. There are certain movies that would be fun to write about, but I, I'm actually rather relieved that I don't have to review all these, you know, sequels and, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter what, what I think of, you know, the latest Marvel movie. Uh, they have a life of their own. But um, I did write, you know, I wrote a couple pieces for Vanity Fair during the pandemic. I did a piece on some of my favorite documentaries of the year. And I did a piece about the making of, uh, I hadn't seen the movie yet. I did a piece about the making of uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Mm. Um, and interviewed Sorkin and a lot of the cast. And members. that was a really good movie too. Uh, it so. was, you know, they wanted some, they wanted somebody to write it, to do the story who had, who had lived through that period, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, um, but I'm, but I'm not, you know. I write, I write a lot of program notes for the Palm Springs International Film Festival, uh, for the films that I program, and do a lot of on stage, you know, and Q and As and interviews with. Uh, had a wonderful. Uh, we had our festival in January, and the first day of the festival, I had a wonderful, like, forty-five minute conversation with. Uh, with Bill Nighy and uh, and Kashiro Ishiguro, who wrote the screenplay of the movie *Living*, right, a, right, remake of the Kurosawa's *Ikuru*, and uh, that that was really fun to do. <laughs> of all the of all the actors you've ever met in real life, uh, mm. can you say which one stands out the most in your mind in terms of being when they walked into the room, you were just uh, uh, completely impressed with them. Gosh, that's a tough one. As I've met a lot and and a lot of directors, 
I mean, I was thrilled when I was very young in my early years, at my first years at, and this is an an old an old name, uh, an old an old movie star uh, who younger people don't even know who he is. But I was thrilled to have a sit down and talk with Melvin Douglas, you know, oh, someone sure. who'd worked with Garbo, you know, I mean, someone who was very cultured and very urbane, and you know, it was just a different era, you know. That was that was kind of a a, a treat, you know. To oh, the the historical figures from our industry are such you know such treasures. Yeah, uh, I uh, I actually got a chance to interview Hitchcock, uh, which was a thrill. Oh, really, for me. I was writing for a magazine in Chicago called Cine Fantastique, which was uh-huh. you remember it. It was yeah. devoted to science fiction, fantasy, and horrors. And my friend Kyle Counts, who was a journalist with them, called me up one day and said. I can't make it down to L.A., Steve. Uh, can you interview Hitchcock? <laughs> and in my entire life, I've never heard of a more no-brainer question. <laughs> but we were doing a cover story on the birds, so I got a chance oh. to sit down with them. Yeah. And if you go on my um, my podcast, I have I have the podcast interview with Hitchcock. I, I, oh, really? I, I revived really? the audio. It starts yeah. off a little muddled. In those days, we just record on those little cassette players. Yeah, but it it comes in pretty strongly, and he he's a, he was it would talk about walking in and being impressed with somebody. It was yeah, like, yeah. I had it was fun. a very amazing interview once with uh, with Sam Fuller. Oh sure. Uh, around the time when the the big red one came out, of course, out. of course. And I went to he was in New York to do publicity, and I went to his hotel room, and um. I asked him a question and he proceeded, you know, he had a cigar in his hand and me sampler talked like this. And he looked sort of like his movies, very punchy. He talked for an hour nonstop. He basically kind of relived world war two <laughs> acting, pacing back and forth down the hill. It was an amazing aria, which of course there was no way that I could encapsulate it in a magazine. <laughs> so he, he literally talked for an hour. Uh, I didn't say a word. And and he, and he stopped. And I asked him a second question, and he talked for another hour and did the rest of World War Two. And that was the entire interview. And it's it so funny. Two, these two brilliant, great arias that you know <laughs> only, only I heard, and there was no way you could transcribe them. You know, it would take up the entire issue of Newsweek. <laughs> well, it's ironic because b- before last week, which was John Ford night, the week before we had Sam Fuller night, and I had Christa, oh, really Krista Fuller and his daughter Samantha Fuller on talking yeah. about their documentary on Sam, and uh, mm-hmm. I got a chance. To, I had just read his book, A Third Face. And I was astonished. I always thought that uh, Sam Fuller, you know, he's always associated with Omaha Beach on Mm D-Day. And uh, I didn't read, I thought he was a war correspondent. I didn't realize that he was a combat infantryman on that horrid beach. Mm -hmm. Crazy, crazy, just crazy. Well, we've been listening to David Anson, the great film critic from Newsweek and so many other publications who's still programming the Palm Springs Film Festival and still writing. And I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. And uh, it's been great talking with you, David. Thank you so much. Really fun. Thank you. We're going to have to have you back one day when we're talking about the state of the state in movies, and maybe we can get (laughs) you on a panel to talk about things as they are. 
Thank you so much. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> when is when will this when will this be on? Uh, this will be on in three weeks. Uh -huh. I'm going to stop recording. Hang on.